0: Chapter 30 of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter 30 No word had come from the studio as to the result of Mem's test pictures. There was no telephone in the bungalow to ring a verbal message in or take one out. Mam could have gone to a drug store and telephoned from a pay station, but she was afraid to hear her fate come rattling out of the little rubber oracle. She wanted to meet her destiny face to face and make a battle for it if the issue hung in doubt. She simply had to have work now, because she had her mother as well as herself to support. She was still too new to realize that need is not a recommendation or a substitute for ability in so far as it has any bearing in the case being hard up is an argument for disability jobs are offered most promptly to those that already have them and those who have work to offer rarely seek those who are idle as mem hastened along a palm-lined avenue to her streetcar, she was hailed by the man she had refused to dance with the handsome mr creighton from whose arms she had fought herself free in rage and terror The first evening of her arrival in hollywood when he tried to make her dance another evidence of the distance she had traveled was the fact that she had danced with him often since and that when he invited her to step into his automobile she hailed him as a taxi angel and ordered him to rush her to her studio at top speed he had bought himself a new racer a long underslung craft of desperate mean i can't afford a car he confessed and it's all bluff but when you're hunting a job, it makes a great effect to roll up in your own roadster. The impudence was contagious, and Mem calmly remarked, "I must get me a car. What do you think is the best make?" The two non-capitalists blithely juggled thousands of dollars and hundreds of horsepower. "What effect do you want to affect?" said Creighton. "If you're going to play ingenues, you'll want a shy and virginal auto." If you're going in for adventuresses and heavies, you'd better get a bus that's a bit sporty. Mem thought she was nobly conservative when she said, I shouldn't like to be too conspicuous. That's right, the gaudy old days are over, said Creighton. The pioneers out here went in for plaids and gold brocade upholstery and everything outrageous. Then Jeanie McPherson made a sensation by having her car painted plain black. And now almost everybody is very sedate except roscoe of course he is so big he has a jumbo car mem was a good enough actress to conceal from creighton the fact that her interest in the makes of cars was a mere windshield to the cold gale of anxiety playing on her nerves she was in a panic lest she should not be engaged at all her immediate problem was not the selection of an automobile but the assurance of food and raiment Creighton rolled her up to the studio gates and waved her good luck. She faltered when she entered the casting office. She almost fainted when Terry's assistant told her bluntly that there was nothing doing. Mister Terry had so many hearts to break, so many hopes to sicken with deferment, that he avoided the ghoulish task when he could. He had warned his assistant to save him from undergoing another of Mem's assaults upon his emotions when mem received this curt facer through the little window in the door between the waiting-room and the outer office she blanched and fell back the room was full of anxious souls each with its desperation there sat a hungry fat woman whose bulk had kept her employed when sylphs had had to wait next her was a gaunt creature who could play famine or a comic spinster with equal skill A brace of sparrows with yellowed curls that looked like handfuls of pine shavings waited with their mother. Three beautiful young men, with the eyes of dying deer, perused their fingernails for lack of more exciting literature. An assortment of villains, first and second murderers, and more or less aristocratic extra folk stood about, hoping against experience. Scattered among the laity, they would have passed for ordinary folk, but grouped here They took on a curiously professional mummer's air. Mem stared at them, and a hot resentment thrilled her. She would not accept a place in this mob of non-entities. She went back to the window and motioned to the assistant casting out director. She pleaded for just a moment of Mr. Teary's time. The assistant said he was busy, but he could not snub those eloquent eyes and that patient man mr terry with a samaritanism that should win him through purgatory accepted the ordeal invited her in and braced himself for the familiar business of the undertaker the old sexton in the graveyard of art i don't think you realize how much this means to me mr terry mem began my mother has unexpectedly arrived i have just got to support us both now and it is more important than ever that i find work poor terry had heard this so often that it ought to have bored him but he could never quite protect himself from these expressive passionate individuals who refused to become mere generalities he was like one of saint hoover's men doling out food about the world hunger was hunger no matter how frequent But he was unable to perform miracles and feed hungry thousands with a few loaves and fishes when his loaves and fishes gave out the baskets were empty and the rest of the sufferers must go vacant he said he was sorry and he was he would keep her in mind he would not forget something might turn up when mem failed to go the busy wretch was tormented into a slight impatience he stooped to self-defense You don't seem to get my angle of it, Mrs. Woodville. I can only hand out what jobs there are to the people that fit them best. You came in the other day and said you were so ambitious and determined that you would er, sell your honor for an opportunity. I told you why I couldn't make the exchange. Now you come in and try to sell me your poverty. That is even less uh, marketable there's a big line of scared and hungry people always forming and falling away out there some of them are all veterans with children artists who have done fine things for us but we have to turn them away if an old lady with sixteen starving babies asked me to let her play a young girl's part i couldn't give it to her could i now no but i'm not an old lady with sixteen children mem persisted stupidly stubborn no, but you don't suit the director, and he's got the final say, Mr. Rooks gave you a test. He saw the result and says you haven't got comedy at least not in that part. Comedy is difficult; it takes twice as much skill and experience as romantic drama. You may have it, but you didn't show it. The test wasn't fair, Mem protested. I didn't have any help. He just told me, Turn your head, smile, laugh, wink, flirt. Who could do anything worthwhile like that? I know, but it cost the company about fifty dollars to make it. It's the test everybody has to go through. Another girl went through the same ordeal, and she made good. She got the job. I'm mighty sorry, but the only job there was is gone. Mem struggled to her feet and turned to the door. But the sight of that plank, that coffin lid, made her recoil. She could not go out into the wilderness. She could not go home to her mother and confess failure, except despair. Her lips wavered childishly. She found things in her throat to swallow. Her eyelashes were full of rain. Her diaphragm began to throb. She cried beautifully, honestly she was not artful about it or insincere it was a gift she suffered with exquisite ease and grace she was one of those pretty things it is hard not to caress in whose wail there is a keen and compelling music terry found himself more dangerously wooed by her grief than by her proffer of love her shoulders were pitifully round her hands groped for other hands to help Her eyes, seemed blurred and monstrous with woeful tears, were more beautiful somehow than when she had tried to fill them with seduction. His heart ached to draw her into his bosom, kiss away her tears, take her upon his lap and soothe her like a child, one of those terrible children that Satan pretends to be when he is most insidious. Mem was a dangerous weeper this would be learned in time and turned to her great prophet and the blissful agony of the multitude she was not acting now she was reacting to the anguish of the bitter world its cruelty its bleakness the favoritisms of fate the willingness of providence to let the willing lie idle and the ambitious starve terry paced the floor promising mem all sorts of wonderful futures He managed hardly to keep his hands from her by entrusting them to each other to hold clenched behind his back, but his sympathy only fed Mem's self-sympathy with new fuel. At the screen door that opened on his office appeared Mr. Rooks, the director, who had rejected Mem after the test. He did not know who was crying, but his emotional soul heard the call, and he peered in through spectacles already misted. Mem saw him and ran to him, imploring please oh please mr rooks give me a chance mr rooks had a priestly regard for his altars a work of art was as solemn and as chaste a burnt offering to his god the public as the oblation of any other priest before any other deity it was just as sacred a duty to him to secure somehow laughter for the comic scenes as tears for the pathetic the public that shapeless invisible ubiquity needed its mirth as well as its lamentations it required not only its hecatombs of human sacrifice but also beeves and bullocks sheep and lambs doves and wrens and swallows rooks knew as well as shakespeare knew that the pathos and the tragedy suffered if there were no attendant buffoonery no relief of tension no tightening and releasing of the springs of laughter if an actor could not command laughter he must not be entrusted with comic roles, however serious his necessities. Rooks would have let his mother or his daughter die rather than give her a part she could not play. Only those who know little or nothing of the dramatic world, or whose own hearts are so hard that they do not care whom they wound, pretend that the world of mimic emotions is cold or cruel. It is amazing how much of the theatrical or cinematical time is spent in easing the inevitable griefs of the vain suppliants. Mem sobs so agitated Rooks that he finally said, You come and see the test yourself, and then, if you think you ought to have the part, well, you come and see for yourself. He opened the door for her and led her out into the lot. He called to a man smoking on a short flight of steps, have you that reel of mrs woodville's test i took the other day i guess so put it on will you sure go in number two and now mem who had seen so many faces flow by in the laboratory projection room and had been so free with comments and criticisms was to see her own soul unreeled she felt a sudden rush of regret for her harsh judgments on those poor creatures who had had to fight for their artistic lives with their features rooks escorted her into a small cell dimly lighted a screen at one end at the other a few seats against a wall perforated for the projection machines the operator in his room at the back snapped off the one lamp on the wall and then played a long stream of light upon the screen every portrait was a record of some mood of mems it was weird to see herself over there flat and colorless yet fantastically alive She was face to face with herself for the first time. Science had answered the prayer of Robert Burns. O wad some power the gifty Giyas! Mem had studied her mirror and still photographs of herself. But now she met the stranger that was herself, as the world knew her. She had never realized her features as they were, nor her expressions. She could look at her own profile she could coldly regard herself in laughter and in an effort at flirtation the miracle of miracles was that her very thought was photographed she could see her brain pulling at her muscles as one who stands behind the scenes at a puppet show sees the man aloft and the wires that depend from his fingers jerking at the jointed dolls she had to admit that her smile was artificial her lips drew back heavily and mirthlessly from her teeth her lips were prettier than she had supposed and her teeth more regular but her smile was a struggle her arch expression was clumsy her glance askance was labored and when she executed the mischievous wink her eyelid went down and up as delicately as a cellar door she shook her head and wasted a blush of shame on the dark She could not blame Mr. Rooks for rejecting her. She told him so, and he was grateful for that. I've learned a lot, she said. I wish I could have another try. I wish you could, but the part is filled for this picture. Another time I'll remember, but it's too late for this picture. He heard her catch her breath in a quick stab, and he was afraid that her prayers would be renewed. He hastened to say, Let me show you the girl who got the part let's see what you think of her he called out oh heinie put on that test of miss dainty sure came the hail from the man at the wheel and then the white beam shot forth a serial portrait of a successful rival this girl was pretty where mem was beautiful she was superficial and frivolous where mem was deep and important but she had the vis comica she was as sparkling as a shallow brook her eyes danced mocked flitted her lips twitched with contagious mockery Mam hated her but smiled in spite of herself giggled in spite of her wrath this girl had chosen the name of dainty to replace the misnomer her parents and her forebears had fastened on her she lived up to her name or down to it she looked pink even in the brown medium of the film she looked round and mellow even in the one dimension of the screen her soul danced back of her eyes and the hand she raised to peek through was like the lithe hand of a bacchant, in whose grasp life is a bunch of grapes spurting wine at the least pressure her very fingers were tendrils and her hair about her head was a vineyard wreath she had her sorrows perhaps and her woes It was probable that she was heartbroken because she had been denied a tragic mask and doomed to make people happy instead of profitably sad. But whatever her private woes, she shed gaiety. The dark and ultraviolet rays were lost in the prism of her soul, and she reflected only the narrow rainbow of good cheer. "'I see why you took her,' Mem sighed. "'I don't wonder.' It's fine of you to say that, said Rooks, and squeezed her hand in grateful compliment. The kindliness of this set the girl's regrets off again. She went out into the sunlight convinced and beaten. But being convinced of one's unworthiness and confessing one's defeat are not consolations, only added sorrows. Before Rooks could escape, she was crying again. She loathed herself for her weakness, her poltroonery before a disappointment. She called herself names, but sobbed the harder for her self-contempt. It chanced that the president of the company was returning to his office from a visit to one of the stages. This was the man whose name was familiar about the world. Every film from his factory was labeled, Bermond Presents, Copyright by the Bermond Company. This is a Bermond picture. The slogan of the company was, This is a Bermond year. When a picture succeeded, the star, the author, the director, the photographer, the art director, the continuity writer, the distributors, divided the praise, the size of each slice depending on who awarded it. When a picture failed, the producer had a monopoly of the blame and the entire financial loss. He was the commercial demon, the fiend of sordid mercantile ideals. Yet Bernard Shaw, with his intuition masked as satire, had said to him, there is a hopeless difference between us mr bermond you are interested in art i am interested only in money as a matter of truth he was the most passionate of idealists compelled to keep the ship afloat like the captain of a ship he had all the final responsibility for the cargo the passengers and the shifts of wind and weather he must study the mystic barometer of public favor and disfavor and keep the prow forging ahead in calm and in Head Gale. He had to build the ship, feed the crew, the stokers and the prima donna passengers, and keep them all from mutiny. If the ship sank, they would all desert him, and he would go down with it alone. In the hard times he must sacrifice much of the cargo, cut down the pay and the rations, shorten sail. Otherwise, the ship would founder. Yet none would thank him for taking the necessary measures to keep it alive. The critics would blame him for many things, but they would never forgive him for letting the ship sink. Success would be both his crime and his condemnation, but failure would be no atonement. Like most business geniuses, he was far more emotional, sensitive, responsive, audacious than the bulk of his artists or his critics. He could not pour out his emotions in song, verse, impersonation, or gesture. He must pour it out in capital. He must dig the capital with grim toil, and he must scatter it like a spendthrift air. With him, and contrasted with him in build, manner, and spirit, was Jacob Frank, vice-president, the immediate master of the crew, whose ideal was calm judgment, a happy ship, a smooth and economical voyage. He was a gentle ruler with a twinkling eye. When Mr. Bermond heard Mem crying, his heart hurt him he did not like scandal disorder confusion or grief on his lot he asked the distraught rooks what had happened rooks explained a bit of temperament she wants a part she can't play and she's all caught up oh that is too bad bermond groaned and his voice took on a mothering tone he went to mem and tried to console her he took her hands down from her contorted face and forced her to look at him Seen through the cascade of her tears, she was strikingly attractive, appealing. He tested the public always by his own reactions. He judged artists by their influence on him. He felt that Mem was somehow an artistic weeper. His brain was alert to make use of ability wherever he found it. Don't you take it too hard, he said. You never know your luck in this world. Many an artist gets thrown out of one job into a much better one i knew a young singer and dancer who was fired because he was not good enough to come into new york with a cheap show two days later he was engaged for the biggest part in the most beautiful musical piece in years and ever since he has been a star if the first manager had not fired him the second would never have given him his chance if you had played that little village vamp you would maybe have played it so badly we should never have engaged you again but now You go home and wash the red out of your eyes, and any day now we'll be sending for you to play a big part. Sarah Bernhardt failed in her first play, you know. And you may be a second Sarah some day. Just you wait. Now that's all right. Mem's eyes were filling with rainbows. A bystander drew Bermond aside. Claymore was a dramatist who had had a few successes before he established himself in the moving pictures as a director. He believed in the eternal verities of dramatic expression and motive, and he was skeptic of the rituals of the parvenu priestcraft of the movies. "'That girl has the tear,' he said to Bermond. "'That woman you've given me for my next picture is god-awful. I've spent two days trying to make her cry. She has the face of a doll, and she's as tender as a billiard ball. She's a confirmed optimist. She couldn't even shake her shoulder blades as if she were crying.' let me take this kid and give her a real test she might have just what we want sure fine go to it said bermond and hastened to mem with the good news that mr claymore the great mr claymore was going to give her a chance so mem left the studio shod with the ankle wings of hope those tireless pinions that carry the actor lightly along such dreary miles of barren road as she hurried through the gate one of the studio cars drew out and the driver paused to offer her a lift he was taking home miss calder an actress of much fame as an impersonator of women of various ages in the picture she was then engaged in she carried the character from young motherhood to ancient grandmotherhood she was tired as a pack horse and small wonder she explained to mem that she had been called at six in the morning in order to be breakfasted and made up for a nine o'clock appearance on the stage the dressing of her hair and the filling of it with white metallic powder that would photograph as really gray was a long and wearisome process the preparation of her features was another she had given herself to racking emotions and much physical toil since nine it was now six and she had not yet had time to remove her makeup mem stared at her in the twilight she was as multicolored as a sunset patches of white blue yellow green and red gave her face a modeling in the monochrome of the negative that could not be imagined from her present barbarous appearance to complete the palette she had painted her eyelashes lavender to soften the flash of her keen irises when she got home she would take off laborious fresco and struggle with the removal of the powder from her hair because on the morrow she must go back for a day of retakes to the period of her young and rosy black-haired bridehood she would be lucky to be in bed by ten in order to be up again at six she had given up a dinner party and a dance that night and had known no recreation for a month was not likely to know any for a fortnight longer for this toil she was paid as mem later learned four hundred dollars a week but it was not much compared with the ten thousand a week that miriam yore was known to have been paid Mem's ardor for a screen career was not to be blunted by any account of overwork artistic toil was what she craved and when the car stopped at her bungalow she ran to her mother rejoicing as if she brought home certain wealth instead of a gambling chance for grueling labor she paused at the door suddenly realizing that her mother was not a woman of theatrical traditions but the devoted wife of a preacher who abominated the moving pictures all the better for never having seen one and whose horror of every fiend connected with them was the more unrestrained for never having met one of the fiends end of chapter thirty recording by diana Beauvais.